Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 39. I'd say start small, build your plan out, and be prepared for your plan to fail and to need to adapt. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers, and every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardage. On today's show, we have Thomas and Cody of Foggy Bottoms Boys. And they have an organic Jersey dairy, grass-fed lamb, fine wool sheep, grass-fed beef, laying hens, and a tiny farmer. Stay tuned to learn about their journey and their operation. However, before we talk to Thomas and Cody, can you do me a favor? Go to grazinggrass.com and sign up for our email list. We are busy working to improve the website and make it more useful for the community. One more thing, we are changing our release schedule and we'll release new episodes on Wednesday every other week. The reason for this change is due to a health issue that we're dealing with. If you're interested at the end of this episode, we'll give you a little bit more information about that. But enough of that, let's talk to Thomas and Cody. Cody and Thomas, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited to have you on. Hey, we're excited too to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, from Northern California, Ferndale Base, 95536. You got to throw out that repping, huh? <laughs> yeah, very <absolutely>. good. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about you all and your operation. Well, I'm certainly the quiet one on social media, but in person, probably a little bit more loud, obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so I'm actually a sixth generation farmer here in Ferndale. My family settled here in the 1860s and we are still farming uh, that original farm and we've added four others over the years. Um, and so along with Thomas, we also farm with my parents and then my grandparents who are supposed to be retired, but as with most farmers, they never really retire. Um, and we have an organic Jersey dairy. We raise grass-fed lamb as well as fine wool um, for yarn and blankets, uh, grass-fed beef, and pastured laying hens. Yeah, don't forget Timmy Farmer. Oh, and we have a, and a, and a small human, too. We're raising a small human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's really the highlight of our day and a lot of our, our social media just because it's quite amazing to be working together side by side with four generations on the farm daily. That is pretty impressive. In you know, it's so important to enjoy those moments. Oh, and he makes every day enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. You all have a lot going on. Growing up, did you both think you'd end up on a farm? Um, well, I'll start. So initially, I actually went to um, college. I went to Oregon State and majored in rangeland ecology with the intent of going to law school and focusing on water law. Uh, and I took a break between graduating with my bachelor's of science and going back for law school. And I never went back. Um, and while I was always really passionate about ag, I grew up milking cows and, you know, on the dairy and with the beef herd and did not think that's what I wanted to do. So I left for a, a year well, for college. Then I spent um, some time working for a niche meats and agritourism company and just really discovered that there was something about home that I really missed and found my way back. Yeah, and I came from a family that had 
dairying on on both sides, both my mother's and my father's. And what what I really knew, I think it was at age eight, I told my dad, I'm always going to love animals and I'm always going to be involved. And he literally challenged me, son, you're too curious about too much to just be involved with animal agriculture. (laughs) And eventually, hey, it did happen. I stuck to it. Very good. I I remember when I went to college and I went out to the the dairy there at OSU and applied for a job, and he's like, and the the herdsman was like, "Now you grew up on a dairy because most kids who grew up on a dairy, they don't want to come out here and work." <laughs> no, no. Usually you run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta take a little bit of break. Yeah, um, and my run was going to marketing school, so I went and got a degree in behavioral consumer science and marketing. And so that's kind of playing a big role in my part on the farm here and marketing our product and sales. Oh, yes. And so you finished college at that point. Did you head back to the farm? Um, So I took four years and worked for a niche meats and agritourism company as their poultry division director um, for North America. And so I was in corporate ag for a short period of time working with several thousand you know tens of thousands of birds at a time um, and discovered that, that was not what i liked and i was not cut out for corporate anything <laughs> and i was trying to climb that corporate ladder in you know one of those big coffee chains and decided to move back home and join a nonprofit to really focus on food security for my community and, and small agriculture working together with slow foods very good. And then at what point did y'all come back to the dairy? It'll be, no, eight years. So we came yeah. back eight years ago now. Um, and at that point, the farm had already diversified into beef cattle, which we've actually had pretty much all along. We yeah. were selling them into a local grass-fed beef program. Um, and we came back with rabbits at the time, angoras for fiber. And that led into a diversification of sheep and angora goats for mohair as we kind of traveled down the route towards creating our own yarn line and the various faux pas that came along with that. (laughs) The fiber exploration road. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And Thomas added chickens almost immediately. And we've experimented with various species of poultry, but have always kind of circled back to laying hens yeah yeah and, and i really enjoyed chickens from the get-go always have had them there's been a few years of my life that i haven't and uh it's it's going to continue i think until <laughs> until Quite we until we die <laughs> oh yes yes one thing before we continue on with your all's journey uh what kind of laying hens are you partial to yeah well you know i really enjoy a variety of different birds just because our part of our marketing scheme is colored eggs so we'll have greens and blues and whites and dark browns and light browns uh, Osterlorps though are my favorite they're the most consistent and they have the hardest form egg shell uh, based on the pasture ground that we raise them on oh yes very good yeah and i do think you bring up a excellent point there about the colored eggs yeah. or just a variety of colors that seems to be pretty popular right now absolutely yeah. It keeps it interesting when you open that carton. Yeah, unless your right. customer thinks that the eggs that are green have been rotten, and that's happened several times. 
Yes. Oh, no. There, there's I, a certain amount of education that has to come along with colored eggs. But... <laughs> you know, that never crossed my mind that, that someone would think that, but. Yeah. Um, Especially when I gave a, a special customer basically all colored eggs, and then she kind of refused them thinking they were all rotten. Oh, no. That's interesting. It's just a factor I hadn't thought about. Now, when you all came back to the farm and you talked about some of the enterprises that you added, the dairy was already going and the beef were, were was already there. Were those being managed regeneratively? Were you all doing um, rotational grazing? How were they managed? Or, and then how's that compared to now? Yeah, so there's been some changes, mostly in the area of the beef cattle. Um, the dairy actually, so the part of California that we live on has a lot of small organic dairies. And uh, we've been using in this area, uh, yes. short duration, high intensity strip grazing or you know, mob grazing since, uh, well, since I was six and I'm now 33, 34. So um, it's been happening for quite some time here. So that was a practice that's really been in place for over 20 years. Um, you know, coming up on 30 now that farmers here have been using that practice. Um, and there's some amount of things like no-till drilling and um, when it comes to seeding or using yeoman's plows and fields. Uh, but definitely for us, there were aspects coming back with a range ecology degree that we changed um, and some new practices that went into place on the farm. Most of it was in the area of the beef cattle. Uh, there was just where they were. It was a lot of set stock, um, you know, set stocking. And as we've kind of moved to other, uh, moved our leases to other ranches, now we're really doing a lot of strip grazing. Um, mostly, you know, on a, right now we're on a two day rotation just because of the time we have with hay, with milking, um, the dairy takes a lot of time out of your day, but we have the cows, uh, there's rotation, they rotate between 10 pastures and those are strip grazed as we move through them as well. So when you say they're rotationally grazed and you have 10 pastures or strip grazed, so about how long do they spend in each pasture? How many strips do you get out of it? Oh, uh, 20 to th Oh, yes. about 20 to 25 strips, depending on how intense yes. we're going. Yeah, they're fairly large pastures. Um, yeah, so we're able to stretch our, you know, right now we're utilizing fields, especially as we're going through the drought, we've been able to stretch our feed and actually really utilize them better by strip grazing. Um, and that's been a major difference for us as you know, we've gone into this drought season that we're all in right now, especially in California, we're actually not having to decrease herd size with our beef cattle just by managing our pastures more appropriately. And you, you're in a drought like much of the Western U.S. How bad is the drought there? It's not good. <laughs> well, as, you know, as I said that, I'm thinking, well, you know, a drought is bad no yeah. matter what. Um, you know, so I will say we live on the north coast of California. We're up in the Redwoods. Our average rainfall, depending on where you're, where you are, kind of where we in the area that we farm in, it's forty to sixty inches of rain a year. Um, so we're probably okay. at what I think we're at thirty this year. Yeah, twenty five, yeah. thirty. So we are, you know, significantly lower um, than average. And 
that has put a lot of pressure on us. We do, there is irrigation that's utilized here. It's all groundwater irrigation. We only irrigate on our dairy. Uh, our beef cattle are not irrigated. The ranch where our sheep are up on the hills is not irrigated and neither is uh, the island, which is where we grow alfalfa and then also do grazing with our sheep on the stubble. And that's actually out in the river. Oh, yeah. So that's sub-irrigated to some extent from the river, but the river is extremely low this year. So even that's pretty dry. We've had, uh, we had a 50% crop failure on second cutting alfalfa, and we're looking at about a third. Yeah, it'll be a third, uh, a third of our uh, acreage that's alfalfa actually being cut for third cutting. So we're it's significantly lower compared to a normal year where we would have a hundred percent crop success all the way through third cutting. Oh yes. Does that, is your drought a multi-year drought as well? Yes, this is yeah, year two. Yeah. And this um, is a worse year than it was last. Much, much worse year than last year. So last year was kind of the preparation for it, but I don't think any of us quite anticipated how severe it was going to be. Um, we were able to prepare, you know, knowing that it was going to be a drought year, we were able to prepare to some extent for it. We decreased our cow herd with the dairy cattle. Um, we cut back our sheep probably a little too intensely for um, what we ended up with. And then we've had to, you know, change how we've managed the beef cattle. When we weaned, we weaned a month early, a month yeah. early um, compared to where we normally would be. Uh, and with the fires and the droughts, we've also had to change our breeding seasons with the sheep. And we like to be hopeful and, and have a perspective of, you know, the, the sun is on the horizon and it will it will rise again. Hey, they're saying there's rain tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, so we're yeah, hopeful. We get, right. Yeah, there it is, yeah. <laughs> Even at that tenth of an, of an inch uh, that doesn't always pan out. But it, it's it's important for us to realize that it's we're growing most, if not all of our own feed. And the only input that we have from feed is, is a little grain that goes into the parlor when we're milking. So it's important for us to realize that as a part of a larger system, we're stockpiling uh, for winter uh, rather than doing winter grazing stockpiling. And so now we've got a convergence of two factors that we need to consider. And that's the grazing pastures as well as the, the cut grass or cut alfalfa. Some of those pastures are used for both, depending on the year. And this year, we had to graze all of some of our grass hay pastures and, and not put up so much uh, into the barns. On your environment there, what kind of temperatures and and how long can you typically graze throughout the year? Yeah, so temperature-wise, we're, uh, you know, California is known for its Mediterranean climate. The redwoods are actually classified as a rainforest. Um, for us, generally, we're looking at like a 20 to 30 degree swing in temperature. 40 is pretty cold um, and 75, 80 is hot. So usually we're kind of in that 50 to 60 range all year. And that's just kind of where we stay. Uh, so, you know, we're not looking at drastic shifts in weather, right. which is nice. Yeah, it is nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> makes it hard to travel out of the area because we're not prepared for cold Oregon. That's, that's right. Yeah, I, I grew up in Northeast Oregon in the, a little town called Union, and it could be anywhere from you know, negative five degrees in the winter with two feet of snow to 110, and you're, you're sweating your hats off and just switching them out throughout the day. 
Oh, I I understand that. I'm in Oklahoma. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah. interesting tidbit that I doubt I've shared on the podcast before. My wife is from Hawaii. So oh, wow. everyone's always like, why did you move to Oklahoma? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> That's like perfect weather. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty nice out there. I can't afford land or cattle out there, but it's pretty nice. Oh, no, no, kidding. no. no kidding. So as you all um, work through this drought and you've reduced numbers some, what are some other things you've done to kind of combat it and prolong your grazing? Yeah, so we've used, um, intensified our grazing. Uh, we implemented with the dairy cows. You know, Usually we're on a 12-hour rotation on the dairy. Um, and so this year for uh, several of our fields, we went to six hour rotation. So we were, you know, setting up two fences, taking them down partway through the day. That way we could utilize our pasture better. Um, with our sheep, we've had to do a few, you know, normally they would spend the summer on the hill and then they'd move to the island for lambing and fall cleanup of the alfalfa fields. Instead, we end up staying on the island longer as fields began to fail, and we moved the sheep out to graze those fields earlier. That way we could stockpile feed on the hill for uh, fall, and then the sheep are currently up there lambing some of our fields that are less accessible in winter. And then, um, so they're lambing on those fields, they'll move back to the island and clean up the fields that uh, we will be cutting this coming week, and then they'll go back to the hill for winter. So we've had to do a bit more juggling where the sheep are and how we're rotating them around. Uh, and then the beef cattle has been really just intensifying uh, our use of mob grazing and you know trying to utilize that better, weaning calves early. Uh, there's been the destocking. And then we also do use irrigation on the dairy. Um, and also on our heifer ranch where we raise our dairy heifers and that's where we finish our grass-fed beef. So it's kind of 50-50 between finishing grass-fed beef and dairy heifers. And so we've been using uh, more, well, we can't, not more irrigation, but we've been utilizing irrigation smarter, we hope. Um, we only run it at night when our evapotranspiration rates are lower and when the wind uh, decreases so you're not just spraying it all over. Um, and we've been trying to really be careful as to, you know, checking soil moisture before we dump water on any ground um, to make sure we're getting the best use of it. Oh, yes. and, um, one thing we've done as well is we've always prioritized uh, diversity within our plant communities. And so that's lent itself to adapting and, you know, going through this drought more successfully rather than having uh, pastures that are routinely farmed and only consist of a few plants um, instead we have most of our pastures that have been farmed or less farmed in 1964 they have we've done some interseeding since then just with broadcasting um, using the animals to tramp that seed in through the winter uh, and so we have really diverse plant communities there and those are really you know as we know a diverse community is a more resilient community so as we're facing the challenges of less water it's giving you know those plants that are better adapted to it, like our terrestrial clovers, um, a greater opportunity to be prevalent this year. 
And on the short side of that, <laughs> we we are able to speak to our audience, and that's really through social media and our, our email marketing that we have. And, and folks definitely understand that uh, a resilient pasture formation and the the grasslands, the, the rangelands that we have, are very important to carbon sequestration and actually participating in uh, climate change mitigation. Do you find that that's really important to your audience or to your customers? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think showing that we're, you know, active participants in a climate solution is incredibly important to our consumers. Uh, They want to know that we are being proactive and they want and they really want to see what we're doing. And so being able to use Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, um, we can show, you know, what's happening on the farm, what are the practices that we're using, and then we can support it uh, with academic studies and, you know, be able to answer questions about the specific plants we're using or how these practices benefit local ecology and plant communities. Very good. You know, I, I think that's really important um, but sometimes I I worry that that's not carrying over and gets lost in the translation to our audience and how important that is to them. I think sometimes they say, yeah, it's important, but then when it comes to their dollars and they spend, sometimes it's not as important. Absolutely. And, and from the marketing standpoint, what we're finding is that we can be a little sassy, we can be a little sexy, we can be a little funny. And then we just drag all the rest of the information in with what we're doing, whether it's our videos for weekly updates or Cody's creative TikToks. uh, There's always a little bit of sprinkle of information. So just like any good educator would do, trying to make things fun at the same time while you're learning. And that way, it's not seen as such a hard leap. Uh, And when you actually do make that purchase, the consumer feels even better about that purchase and wants to come back. Yeah, I I think you bring on... uh or you hit on some really good topics there just on your marketing, making it fun, but then including that information in there. Um, you guys do a, at least from what I'm seeing, you all do an excellent job with marketing. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, we, we try to be informative and share information, but what we found is, you know, that most people don't want to be told what they're supposed to know and think. Um, right. And if, you know, you can add it in a fun context, if it's, you know, lip syncing to a video on TikTok and you add a few, you know, lines about something to do with sheep or with beef cattle, it makes it informative. Or we do like uh, have a whole series where we talk about our breeds of sheep and rate them from one to 10. And it's usually kind of snarky commentary, but people really engage with that. And they're learning about breeds of sheep and the sheep industry as you're doing this, but it's presented in kind of a fun way that it doesn't seem like education. I think that's, we found really important way to make that connection, share what we're doing, and then also bring people back to our website to buy a steak or a t-shirt. That's right. And we've learned not to piss off the textile community in that, in that video. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as we, we move back to your animals a little bit and in your practices during the drought. Have you noticed a decrease on milk production? You still doing pretty good or your cows still doing pretty good with the new grazing? Has it improved milk production? 
Um, so overall through the summer, we have noticed a decline in production. And a lot of that has to do with you know, our pastures early on were older because we were knew we were going into a drought and we were kind of stockpiling feed for the summer where normally we would have cut it for hay. Um, and so utilizing that shorter grazing period really got them to optimize that forage and helped us keep that production up or even drive it up in some instances. Um, as you know, we went through that older feed and cow dairy cattle really need you know, high nutrition. Um, they've got to be kept on a high nutritional plane to optimize production and to keep that up. And so as we fed, went through that and went into shorter feed, um, it was shorter and it wasn't, you know, as high quality as we would have liked. And we've definitely seen a decline in production since then, which has been a struggle of just trying to balance that with, you know, what's best for our pastures. Um, our beef cattle have been finishing out like no problem yeah. all through oh, the, yes. all through the drought and our ewes are actually probably you know we had an incredible breed up they were on a super high plane of nutrition when we were breeding and so our fecundity rates are starting to look like they're going to be pretty good as we start lambing yeah their condition is probably better in some cases just yeah, because we have been focusing on them quite so. a bit very good and hopefully you'll have a nice um, lambing percent this season we're we're hoping so. It's looking like it's going to be at least 180 percent. Uh, so, oh. based on the first few days of lambing. Oh yeah, <laughs> already have a bummer. Already have already a bummer. have a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that continues for you. With the sheep, um, with fall lambing, do you notice a decrease in your lambing percent versus spring? And I know that's kind of a, a could be an easy question if from my point of view, because in my my experience, spring has a higher lambing percent, but you're working with some different breeds. And while I assume that's true, I don't know for sure. No. So we actually don't have a, a lower lambing percentage. One of the reasons oh, yes. we switched to fall lambing entirely this year, where there's, with the exception of a few sheep that are bred for show lambs, um, everything's lambing in the fall. And one of the reasons we did that is that breeding season for our spring lambing fell during the peak of fire season. And in the last two years, oh, okay. we noticed that our lambing percentages were dropping pretty drastically. Uh, as we were trying to breed ewes when it was really smoky, there were days where the sun, you know, we've had days where the sun never rose. Uh, it was dark all day long. The chickens never came out of the coops just because there was so much smoke. And so as we were looking at how we were going to push our lambing percentages back up, uh, fall lambing was the best option there. We also are able to put them on a pretty high plane of nutrition in the fall or in the spring as we're breeding for fall lambing. So it works really well right. for flushing just on pasture. And with oh, our yeah. grazing, um, you know, we want to butcher lambs predominantly in the spring. We do sell lamb throughout the year, but there's usually the highest demand in the spring. So taking those fall lambs, wintering them, getting a spring flush on them and then harvesting them worked really well for our production system as well. Uh, and the Rommeldales and Horned Dorsets breed all year long. So getting yeah. them to breed at any point is no problem. As long as you meet their nutritional needs, they are ready and willing to breed up. Although Cody did have a great idea one season in transition that we would be lambing in the middle of winter. And, uh, 
I, I've never lambed in the middle of a wet, soggy winter, and I will never do it again. No, it was pretty, it was pretty <laughs> miserable. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And we pasture lamb. We don't jug lamb. Uh, the oh, one yeah. thing I will give Rommeldales and Horn Dorset's credit for is even lambing in the middle of a terribly wet winter, they are great moms, and they will lamb on pasture right. and dry those lambs off, and right. they shelter up under the trees and take care of them. They do. But it's a lot nicer to do it this time of year when the weather is very amenable to getting lambs up and moving and not being wet sheep and wet shepherds. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, jumping back just a little bit, and you're talking about changing your breeding season, you know, that just hammers home that idea you know farming's local you got to look at the circumstances the conditions you're working with and figure out what works in your system so i i think that was a really good idea there cody to to try out the fall lambing to get around the smoke issue yeah and it works the fall lambing works well with our shearing schedule as well and so for us, it was, it's really just been the best case scenario. Okay. You bring up something right there that I'm not familiar with. And I say this, I went through FFA in high school. So I saw all the people showing lambs and all the shearing and trimming they did on their lambs. And I showed dairy cattle and I much preferred my dairy cattle. But when <laughs> you think about your sharing, shearing process with your ewes, how often do you do that? And is it something you do? Do you hire someone to do it? Well, I'm going to talk about this one because it was a conversation on the car right before we started recording today. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and that is, you know, if Cody had the opportunity to to shear our sheep and, and keep them carved out all year round, we absolutely would. The show uh, sheep. The show sheep. The show sheep, yes. that is. Which is, our, you know, the younger, the younger generation of the stock. Uh, but what we end up doing is as one sh full shearing for our, our commercial flock. And then we do what, you know, it's called tagging of course uh, for, for them and for those, those kill strips for the animals that we're going to take to butcher uh, on another time of the year, just depending on when it's necessary. But when we're talking about fiber and utilizing fiber, it's also a very important and key aspect to making sure that we have the right staple length. And another part of that is uh, something that when we're, when we're considering uh, the type of or the time of year that we're growing out that wool, uh, when you have a, a bad winter, there's the opportunity for the fiber in the fleece to get weak um, and break even. So that, that causes oh, okay. for a yarn or a roving that's actually uh, not as stable when it, it, it comes into its final form. Very interesting. I just learned a whole lot in a short period of time that I didn't know. <laughs> uh, my big problem with wool sheep here, and I'm not, I say my big problem, I haven't tried wool sheep, okay? Um, <laughs> but we have cuckaburs. It, oh, yeah. Do you oh, all man. have some, some um, plants out there that cause some problems if they get in your wool? And how they do you do. combat that? So our shearing time is pretty critical to that. Um, when you're looking at your fleeces and sending them for final product, you need to have as little vegetative matter in the fleece as possible. And using a fall shearing helps with that just in that right now, mo like we sheared 
end of August. Yeah. And so as a lot of the grasses are seeding out and getting to the point where they get into the fleece, our sheep are down to no no fleece. Oh, yes. And so we can put them out into that tall grass to graze now. Um, and up until that point, we have to be very careful not to have them in tall grass that's seeding out as that would get into the fleece or into uh, thistles or anything that might, you know, at degrade our fleece quality or you can get yelled at by your husband because you throw hay over yes, the use they were just no one ever throws hay over the top of the sheep it has to be dropped into the field and that comes down to you know a cost benefit analysis of if you have warm veg- vegetative matter in that product that's being the fleece that's being sent into a product then you, you do pay a little bit more when it comes to making that clean and, and to making that uh, so that it's a product that actually shines and is working well in the handle of, of the customer and the consumer that's using it. That makes sense. And that timing makes sense. Um, yeah. And instead of co- continuing on about fiber, because just uh, heads up for all the audience, we're going to come back to fiber and talk a little bit deeper on that for the overgrazing section. Let's jump Great. back over to the cows for a little bit in your marketing. So for your dairy cows, how do you market your milk? Yeah, I had the opportunity to work with Rumiano Cheese Company. They've been around as a family-owned company since 1919, and they've gone from seven facilities all up and down the west coast of California making uh, cheese rations for the government during uh, the World War II. And now I have one production facility up in Crescent City that's been there for a little over 70 years. And uh, that's where all of our milk and all of our friends and and neighbors, or most of our friends and neighbors' milks, uh, go up to that processing facility. And they make cheese, obviously, but as well as butter, ghee. And on one square city block, they've also added the, the capacity to dry whey and lactose. And they ship that over to the Asian markets for baby formula and the whey protein powder gets used here domestically as well. So, so our milk isn't marketed by us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we help we help market the products the best that we can, just just to you know, show in good faith that we really do enjoy all of the products. That's a funny story, but uh, we are the conundrum of the dairy farmers. Cody can't have casein. And I can't have lactose. So we're the dairy-free dairy oh, farmers, yes. depending on what product. That yeah, we're we, we love the idea of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's good that you, you know, have good things to say about you want that, that company to survive because it, it provides value for you and a market available for you. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. One thing is we think about dairies and what you're doing, it so much depends on the processor unless you are willing to work 48 hours and 24 hours right? because right, there's exactly. just not time to do everything. I would, I love the idea of making cheese and oh yeah, I have, um, I've tried to convince my wife, I wouldn't mind buying some um, dairy sheep or dairy goats and making a little bit of cheese. But then she reminds me, um, I, I don't have enough time as it is right now, so <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do that. Well, you know, Cal, this is the first time I've heard you mention dairy sheep. I've heard you talk about dairy cows, but hey, I, I'd be interested in talking about those dairy sheep. Cody <laughs> thinks that's a great idea too, don't you? No, I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I find the dairy sheep fascinating. I went to a cheese making class in Missouri for making uh, soft cheese from cool. sheep's milk. Yeah, it's sheep's cheese is, is very interesting. I first had Manchego a few years back, and I probably had it before then, but didn't realize it. Uh, but it's a it's a different flavor profile that you can identify once you know what it is. It it is, and not to offend anyone, I find it better than uh, goat cheese. I, oh, absolutely! Oh, I for just, sure. <laughs> um, goat cheese just well, it just depends on so many factors, and sometimes you get that um, as as that buck flavor through it. Uh, yeah. cheese is yes. just so clean and smooth tasting. Like I said, I'm kind of busy, so maybe I won't do that. Right <laughs> Let someone else make it. Yeah. Put it right. on the shelf for later. Now, I love to eat it. So if you have some cheap cheese out there, hey, I'm I'm your guy. <laughs> on the beef cattle, do you all handle all the marketing for the beef cattle? Yes, or I should say predominantly um, yes. at this point. Yeah, so we have 80 cow-calf pair. And what we do is we raise some of those for our own grass-fed beef program. Um, we use all Angus bulls, and we're selecting for marbling and ribeye um, EPDs when we're selecting our bulls. But our cow base is also Angus, uh, Black Baldy, Hereford, and some Murray Gray. Oh, yes. Um, you know, we like a little diversity in there. It keeps the keeps it interesting when we're working cows. There you Easier go. to keep track of, Easier I'll tell you that yeah. much. Um, so unfortunately, particularly in this area, uh, anything that's not Angus is heavily discounted at sale. Mm -hmm. um, it's about $20 a hundred weight lower. Um, so anything that has Hereford markings or is gray, uh, might have horns or is red, we don't sell into another grass-fed program. There's a couple local grass-fed programs that we'll sell weaned calves into since we um, don't need all of our calves right now, especially since they're all born at once. Oh, yes. Uh, and so what we'll do is we'll sell those calves into another program. We'll finish the kind of odds and ends, and then we'll also purchase from other farms that we know other ranches that have programs that um, meet our requirements and we'll buy the calves that they can't sell that are you know, not strictly black or, and we'll finish those. So we end up with the ones that we market and grass finish are usually kind of a fun assortment of colors, um, but they're all really well-bred, high quality steers and heifers. They just don't fit that certified Angus uh, label that is pretty much required up here to sell animals at a premium. Oh, yes. And that's the neat part about working with our family is Cody's dad, Rick, has been around the beef cattle industry for a very long time and knows what the animal looks like on the hoof uh, as if it were hanging. So he's been able, Cody's been able to be trained by his dad over his lifetime about what that animal will look like and, and how it will finish out. Uh, and so when we're talking about butchering specific animals uh, before we actually go to our, our kill dates, obviously that we have uh, months out sometimes, I think we're already booked out a, a nearly a whole year out right now. And what that looks like is, Hey, if it's not ready to finish, then there's nothing else to replace it. And instead of three or four, we might end up with just two animals going to the butcher. And that's, 
really part of our quality assurance program that may may seem detrimental to the pocketbook, but very important to continuing to keep the customer happy with the type of finish and marbling that we're looking at. Right. When when they're ready, they're ready. And if they're not ready, they're not ready. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, that's, that's about as elegant as I get, but... <laughs> but very accurate. <laughs> yes. Now, on the breeds... Herford, Angus, fully familiar with. Uh, Murphy Gray's, I've heard of it. In fact, I went visited a farm a month ago, and the gentleman's got a couple Murphy Gray's. But Murphy Gray's are not a breed that I see very much in my area. They're not common here either. My mom got um, a random hair when I was probably 10 or 11, and she found them in a magazine, decided she really liked them, found the breed interesting, and went and bought a bunch of semen. Um, actually happened to email uh, a Murray Gray stud. They had randomly shipped some to Humboldt County, and it was still sitting in the uh, ABS salesman's tank like six years later. Oh yeah. And so she bought all that semen and proceeded. We had a, at the time we had a small herd of beef cattle. I think it was about 20 head of cows. And she just started breeding all of our cows with it over a few years. And so she built up a predominantly Murray gray influence herd. Uh, but as we've added cattle and, you know, they were selling into the local grass fed programs that needed to be black calves. They've been using more, Angus influence on them, but you still get quite a few gray calves popping up, and uh, and they still have that that type, the Murray Gray type, which is we all really like. Uh, tell us fun. a little bit more about that Murray Gray type. Yeah, they're a more moderate cow. You don't end up with that, you know, the extremes. Um, you know, they're a thousand to twelve hundred pounds. Um, you know, not real tall, leggy, uh, kind of compact real wide set and stocky. They, they remind me of an Oak table. They've got a, you know, leg in each oh, corner. Yeah. They're just yeah. real solid animals. Um, and that's really the kind of beef that we're selecting for. We want, you know, animals that are stout, that are, you know, solid, stand on strong feet and legs and a cow that has the body capacity to eat a lot and to carry a calf, but is not so big that she's just inefficient and wasting feed. All excellent points. And with the Murray Gray, that's my understanding of them as well. I just don't have any firsthand experience with them. Yeah, we like them. <laughs> well, very good. You mentioned AI, and do you all AI the majority of the beef herd? No, um, we did for quite some time. And then now we buy a bull. So we're on a three-year rotation. So we run three bulls, and we purchase a new bull each year. Um, and so we cycle a bull out and replace him. Um, and so we have been using bulls out of other herds, just the labor involved in artificial insemination on our beef herd is too high, um, for the results, but on our dairy herd, it's entirely AI. Yes. Yeah. And all that makes sense to me. And that that's kind of what we find. I miss growing up on a dairy, as I mentioned, we AI'd everything. And I kind and I miss the AI aspect on the beef herd, um, so I do have a semen tank now, so I can AI a few. But really, when you get down to the cost of it and the benefit, it's really not practical. It's more something I enjoy. 
Yeah, it does. It is nice to be able to select those those features that you're looking for to, to breed in. Yeah, you can, you know, if you're looking for certain genetic progress, it is a great way to make that progress quickly. Oh, yes, um, it is. It's just the labor. The labor involved for us right now doesn't balance out. So. I have an interesting story about sire directories. So <laughs> I am a... I guess a third generation dairyman, except I no longer dairy. So, you know, my dad and mom dairied, my grandparents dairied. I remember being, I don't know, probably four or five up at my grandparents. And my grandpa kept all his sire books in a end table next to their sofa. So one day up there, I got them out and I'm going through them. And I knew enough at that time that cattle were worth more than the $15 he had wrote next to the bull. And I'm looking, (laughs) so I start asking some questions. And maybe I'm a little bit older. Maybe I'm six or seven. But I'm thinking there's opportunity to make some money. Because if I can buy that bull for $15, I know I can sell him for more at the snow barn. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Sadly, it didn't yeah, work that way. No, that's yeah. not how they work. No, they are. They are pretty complicated. <laughs> you got to know what you're looking at. Yeah, and, and and you don't get the full the whole bowl for that right. price. Yeah. <laughs> just just about a an eighth of a cc. <laughs> right. Yeah. Moving on over to your poultry, you've ran poultry for quite a while. Um. Are you just, yeah. do you do pasture poultry as well or just the laying hens? Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was this last year's adventure with the pandemic. We really decided that laying pasture poultry, or excuse me, raising pastured poultry uh, among the laying hens um, would be a good idea. And it was a great idea. No, we definitely served a need within our community yeah, by offering yeah. broilers. We never had problem getting getting rid of them at a premium price. No, we raised a lot of broilers. We sold a lot of broilers. We did uh, full whole birds and parts. Um, but it also, we have a lot going on. And we, as the pandemic continued, we just had to realize that we couldn't be all things to everyone in the yeah. community. Yeah. Um, and so the broilers came to an end. Uh, for now for yeah yeah um, <laughs> we've done turkeys in the past we did it once uh they were not conducive to farm harmony between all members of the family yeah <laughs> so the turkeys they they were mischievous and they had a habit of wandering half a mile back up to the barns and wandering into the milk barn or the hay barns yeah. and so they once they were harvested they never came back <laughs> um and now we just have the laying hens. But, you know, they never laid on a clutch of eggs, and we didn't have any poults or anything. No, you know? no. It didn't get that bad. No, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like the duck. We had ducks for a while as well. <laughs> that got incredibly out of hand. It, you it, knew where I was going with that it became story. A, it became known as the duck situation. <laughs> um, there was, I think, 10 ducks originally, and by the end of the summer, there was like 90 ducks running around yeah. the barnyards, and yeah. they were not even supposed to be a business they were supposed to just eat the snails and slugs and that they did for two solid years we didn't have a snail or slug problem <laughs> but now we have no ducks and there's a hard and fast rule that ducks are not allowed on the farm and mm-hmm. ever again oh yeah um, yeah and there were runner ducks they're they're not supposed to be broody but yeah they did be broody but they, oh, they yeah. certainly 
laid many yeah. egg and, and raised a mini duckling. <laughs> so many. But now we, yeah, so now we have the Langhans. There's 500 Langhans currently. Yeah, currently, there'll be 2,000 in November. Yeah, and we do all the egg processing on farm. Um, we've had chickens on our farm right now. All of our birds are at our neighbor's, and he is taking care of them. He uh, got really interested in regenerative ag, and he wanted to use birds and try it out. And so we worked with him and now he has gone really into the chickens mm -hmm. hence the 2000 and i think all of our chickens are staying at the neighboring farm <laughs> and yeah. we're handling all the egg washing processing and marketing, marketing sales yeah very good on the brooders the discontinued program did you all process them did you all have a processor close by no, so we did it all on farm. Unfortunately, one of the challenges with where we live in California is that nothing is nearby. Um, we're about four and a half, five hours north of San Francisco. And so the closest USDA processing facility is seven hours from us. Oh, yes. Uh, one way. So we did all on farm harvest. Uh, how California recognizes the federal exemption is, as with every state, is unique. And so it, made it possible we could uh, sell eggs or sell broilers um, direct to consumer but there's limitations as to where we can sell or how we can represent the birds um, or market them and so and we can't sell birds for anyone else and so it just became uh, very cumbersome to handle processing them and then how we could legally market them oh, especially yeah. given our visibility through social media what risks we are allowed are willing to take there yeah. yeah yeah you get into a lot of red tape there absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> as you've gone on your journey to this point what are some of the the bigger challenges you all face Oh gosh, bigger. <laughs> Which one's small? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no challenge is ever small at the time of the time. Yeah, this is true. very true. Very true. <laughs> um, I think one of the early challenges was family buy-in. Mm. Um, you know, we we oh, came yeah. back um, to the dairy, and there was definitely you know. We're always on our phones and doing, you know, playing on social media and <laughs> the value of social media wasn't at the time, you know, very apparent, I don't think. Um, and so it was just seen as kind of like, you know, wasting time, you know, get off your phone and do something important. Uh, but out of that, we built a brand that's, you know, allowed us to move forward and to diversify. Um, and I think also, you know, we were definitely had those moments where as we were diversifying, there were definitely missteps with species that we tried and those did not create harmony on the farm. <laughs> and that, you know, so not those diversifications were not always seen positively initially. Now looking back, I think everyone sees it as a positive progress, but when the goats went missing for two weeks and ended up on fish and wildlife and, we were all in a panic. I don't think anyone saw that as a positive moment. I so. did. However, <laughs> that was no rift in my family threads. Uh, I, I definitely was ready for those goats to go. <laughs> um, my wife was ready for me to sell my goats when I sold them. <laughs> yeah, Where the, water go, flows, goats can go. <laughs> there is. <laughs> that is true. There's no containing yes. them. So we tried 
quite a few different goat options and we have just come to the the family conclusion that we are not goat people and they are not meant to be on any farm that we operate <laughs> so <laughs> we will not have goats <laughs> there you go yeah where do you all see yourself going in the future yeah, there's diversification on our farm that's being dialed in. And one way that we know that we're going to be able to be successful is by sharing that with others. It's an important part of my makeup and what makes me tick and, and what I get excited about and the value structure that I really subscribe to. And that's local food systems and having some sort of connection with a food hub, uh, agritourism, and making sure that it's not just 1% or less than 1% of the population that is connected to food uh, by way of, of direct uh, support in their livelihood. Uh, we need to grow that number, and that will ensure our food sovereignty and, and food security, especially here on the North Coast. We've got four arteries in and out, whether those are uh, the 101 or 299 or Highway 36. Uh, those those were closed, or three of those avenues were closed down uh, during the summer. And usually we experience uh, situations like that during the winter where there's slides or, or washouts or uh, other challenges with the road just by simple visibility uh, and causing accidents. Uh, but here in the summer this, this year, it really made it clear to me that we need to diversify in a way that is educating folks. And that's bringing people to the farm and doing workshops and presenting food in a way that makes it doable for them uh, to participate. On that area, are you already bringing people to the farm? So we have offered some amount of um, farm tours. We had limitations on it, especially just um, there's a high prevalence of animal rights activism in our area. And so that's yes. made it difficult to open ourselves up, um, especially as a dairy because uh, that tends to be kind of the target. Um, so we're moving forward as you know the summer goes. We're expanding out into experiences where people who we're familiar with and we've interacted with or our customers um, are coming to the farm and we're doing dinners and they can have dinner with us and they can take tours of the farm. And so it gives, you know, two hours of our time at night and we can kind of share farm and a meal with them and also show them a way to prepare what's produced on our farm um, in a way that's you know accessible and also enjoyable and so whether that's you know teaching them how to reverse sear a tomahawk steak or to um, you know crust a, a top sirloin in coffee and sear that on the grill um, it's all kind of a way of highlighting our product and also giving them that on-farm experience and letting them bring two friends with them when they do it. That's a, a very creative way to to mitigate some of the risks you have by having on-farm tours, but you're you're building that connection. And I'm sure those people, when they leave, they're lifelong customers. Absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's what you're always looking for, the sales funnel. Starting with that awareness. Yes. But when you get that those evangelists, uh, those that continue to come back and, and share your product with others, um, yeah, that's that's really what we're looking forward to, and and again, that's part of my value system is making sure people are aware that what what and how we are farming is important for their values as well when they when it comes down to it. 
and sharing a steak and a glass of wine with someone is always fun. Uh, don't forget the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cody and Thomas, I've enjoyed your story thus far, but it's time for us to transition into the overgrazing section where we take a deeper dive into something about your operation. And I think tonight we're going to talk about wool, sheep, and fiber. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, I think that's something that we need to bring to your podcast a lot. We've been hearing these wool versus hair sheep stories, and there's a whole other faction inside those wool sheep. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, do tell. Enlighten all of us. Yeah, so we raise two different types of um, wool sheep. We raise horn dorsets, which are a medium wool breed, and then rommeldales, which are a fine wool. So they have a fleece similar to a merino in that it's a really low micro. Oh, okay. Um, so it's suitable for next to skin wear, whereas the horn dorsets being a medium wool aren't necessarily ideal for next to skin wear, but they have a really abrasion resistant fleece. And so we have that used as sock yarn because um, your feet aren't so sensitive oh, that they okay. need a 20 micron or lower fleece, uh, but they definitely wear on any garment that you wear. So using a more abrasion resistant wool makes for socks that last longer um, and, and so, i'm i'm being raised on with the suffolk sheep i'm all about making sure that they're they're built out and conditioned to be eaten and when i joined up with cody and came down to the farm i uh, got him a couple of those merino sheep that uh i, I didn't realize what i was getting into because he had those fine wool sheep before when he was in a 4-h but uh, wow, wow, it's a whole nother animal. It's not just raising an animal and, and feeding it to, to properly condition it. It's looking at many different factors. And our Rommeldales are dual purpose, essentially, so that we're raising them for fiber as well as meat uh, with, the, with the prevalent focus on the fiber, fiber uh, but being able to offer that meat product as well. Yeah, and so we definitely, one of the aspects of raising sheep for fleece is that you have to manage those fleeces. Uh, and so that comes down to, like we discussed earlier, our shearing times, sort of pastures they're on, uh, their nutrition plays into that as well, um, you know, meeting their nutritional needs so that they can grow that fleece and that you can reach a three-inch staple length at the minimum, uh, so is three inches is what a mill needs to process your fleeces. And then there's just that an entire part that comes at shearing and how you handle shearing. Uh, when we shear, we have a shear come in and he shears, uh, but he also shears our sheep as wool sheep. So he can't take second cuts, um, you know, go back and clean up a spot that he missed because that'd be a short staple length piece that would throw off a garment or would make a weak spot in a yarn um, or a slob, like oh, a yes. thick point. So, you know, he has to shear them with the intent that their fleeces need to be highest quality coming off. And then those fleeces are weighed and skirted. So they go onto a table and we have a wool classer who comes and she helps us skirt the fleece and then grades them. And our sheep are both white and natural coloreds. And so the fleeces are graded as to their quality, whether or not they can go into a yarn or to blankets, or if they're low quality, they may be able to be uh, put into roving and we 
use those to make dryer balls that we sell. You're the or, cause of my carpal tunnel. Yeah. Or <laughs> future carpal or, tunnel. Or if they have a weak point, um, like a wool break where the sheep maybe had a fever at some point during the growth of her fleece uh, over the year or had a nutritional decline for some reason, the fleece will become weak and that's not usable. And those go into mulch, which we either use on the farm or we sell to marijuana growers um, <laughs> as garden mulch. Oh, so we go. have to, you know, divert our fleeces as to what's the appropriate use for them. Okay. You've said a whole bunch of stuff I'm not familiar with. And one thing you mentioned was a nutritional deficiency or, or something causing a weak area in the wool so you don't get the right staple length. How do you tell there's a weak area in the wool? Yeah, so a fleece is actually a record of that sheep's life over that year uh, from shearing to shearing. And so what happens is if there's a point where they're fevered or they have nutritional issues, they'll actually be, when you're looking at that staple length, there's going to be a line that runs through it. And if you grip each uh, end of the staple or the lock between your fingers, you know, your thumb and finger, and you just tug on it or shake it, it'll actually shred perfectly down that line. And so that's the weak oh. point. And so before you send any fleece into the bag to be you know, sent to the mill, you test every fleece to make sure that there's not a weak point in that fleece. So if uh, a ewe has whatever, that may, or has conditions that lead to this weak area in the wool, that's going to be throughout all her wool. Yeah. So you you can just do one test on a. Yeah, you just pull a, on the wool from one yeah. sheep and it's good. Yeah. Well, so each sheep needs to be tested, but you'll yeah you'll just pull one sample from that fleece and test it, um, and that's part of why we shear in the fall as well. Now that we're doing fall lambing, is that lambing can be stressful, and if a ewe has a dystocia, that generally will cause a wool break because that's a stressful point in her life. And so by shearing right before lambing, not only are they cleaner uh, as they lamb, but it puts any wool breaks at the tip of the fleece. And if it's as long as it's at the tip oh. or the very base of it, you, the fleece is still usable. And so you want to schedule your shearings on wool sheep around lambing as well as the season for vegetation. Makes sense, but... Um... I'm not the person that needs to be saying it makes sense. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I find it really interesting though. Okay. So after you get the wool off and it's been graded and I don't know, I don't know what skirting is. Uh, skirting, you lay the fleece out on a table that has, it's a wire table. So any second cuts or bits of dirt fall through and then you just go through and you pull off any parts that are felted or the part from you know around the rear end that might have muck on it, um, or any dirty bits. So all of that just gets tossed aside into yeah. the tag bags. Oh, okay. Yeah. What what happens to the wool after you've done that and you've tested it? So what's the process for it after that? Um, depend. This year we pulled samples on every fleece, and those were put in a bag, and they were sent to the lab, so they'll be micron tested. Uh, so that way we can use that for breeding decisions and culling decisions to continue to push our sheep down to a 19 to 20 micron fleece, um, which is just the fiber diameter and the finer the diameter, the 
more usable the fleece is for next to skin wear. And so we want a softer wool. Uh, and so we pull that sample and then it goes into the bag depending on where it's destined for. And so in the case of yarn, it'll go into the bag that's labeled for yarn. Someone has to, you know, go in periodically and stomp on it to pack it down um, as you add fleeces. Oh, yes. And then usually, usually a small child gets tossed in there. <laughs> and they can any farmers not quite yeah, big, not, enough not quite big enough. But and when and as once it, you know, you get enough fleeces and they can get back out, but until that point they have to hang out. And then uh we'll take that bag and we'll take it to the mill. The mill we work with uh, is in Ukias. So they're only two hours away, so it's pretty close. And they will wash it or scour it. And then they'll run it through uh, carters and put it into roving and then through their spinners. Um, and because of their locality and them being a smaller mill, they're able to do some pretty specialty yarns for us. So they can change the colors of fleeces since we have natural colored sheep, so they can make natural tones to our yarns. So that way, every yarn that we're producing is pretty unique. Um, and so one thing is we do is we don't ever offer the same yarn one year, you know, and then do it again the next uh, because yeah. the conditions no, that yeah. generated that yarn are not going to exist. And our flock composition is not going to be the same to be able to do that same kind of yarn. And quite frankly, the mill probably doesn't remember how they got that one because they process <laughs> so many fleeces. Well, and the one that we have carried through is our white. Uh, we do have, have 100% yeah, white. Yeah, we have bred in a lot of uh, white Rommeldale, and that's as far as a CVM or California variegated mutant, uh, they're also known as, is it's a, not very common. Um, so what, what we are doing in that way as part of our breeding program is important to continue to keep the white so that those those yarn freaks, <laughs> those fiber fiber freaks is what we call them, uh, are ourselves. Very affectionately. Very affectionately, very affectionately. Um, <laughs> Is, is they able to die and do different processes on, on their end. Uh, we also have shipped back east uh, to a mill when we're utilizing Angora rabbit fiber, which we also raise. And that's a lot harder uh, to deal with. We don't raise a bunch of it, uh, but it's something that Cody actually really focused on early on when breeding his rabbits. Uh, and that's uh, a satin Angora. And you can probably speak a little more to that. Yeah, they were a fine wool rabbit, and so it just added a sheen. We don't actually have them any longer just because the time involved with maintaining them, but we have probably three years' worth of fiber from when we did raise them stockpiled, and that's uh, it adds a nice uh, halo. So as you work with the yarn, it becomes super fluffy, and so it makes this naturally fluffy yarn that's very shiny. And so as we've moved through our fiber exploration and adventures, we found that all these textures and tones and colors really impact how a yarn handles and how it sells. And that having that diversity in our yarn line makes it easier for us to reach those fiber freaks and the customers <laughs> that want to, you know, that people that really love yarn and wool. Um, and they, you know, they want to be able to try a variety of things from your farm. And so we've done that. And we've also partnered with other local farms that way we can do some more exciting blends. Has it been fairly easy? I think easy is probably the wrong word there. But developing the clientele for your fiber and the yarn. I think the clientele has been particularly easy, actually. Uh, through yeah. social media, the, 
the fiber community online is incredibly strong. There, I mean, there are Facebook groups um, on Instagram. There's a whole like fiber talk on TikTok. So finding people that are value quality, you know, farm yarns is pretty easy to connect with. We also have a very strong fiber shed in this area. And so making the connections to customers and then the beautiful thing about yarn in relation or comparison to uh, a steak is that it's really easy to ship yarn yeah. and store <laughs> and store. And, oh, yes. you know, it, yes. it's very easy to keep it and it's very easy to ship it. And so we can send it all over the world and we do. Um, I think the biggest challenge with yarn has honestly been the processing, yeah. um, finding a mill to work with, and then also just recognizing that those mills are heavily impacted, just like uh, our meat processors are. And so, you know, you might send your wool to the mill, but it's not coming back in two weeks or three weeks or two or three months. It's going to come back in eight, nine, 10, 12 months. Um, and so you have to plan for that sort of a delay. Oh, yeah. And know that that's, yeah. that's just the process. Yeah, we don't even really market our fiber very much, just so we have it on hand for those that are curious or, or customers that have you know, repeat uh, designs that they want to make for a friend or what have you with the same yarn. Uh, so we, we just allow that to kind of flow out as inventory as, do, as necessary. And usually we do like a short holiday push. Yeah, and that, right. And usually a short holiday push for us, even with our flock, size of our flock, we can will end up selling out of most yarns. Yeah. No, yeah. And the one thing that we are able to do, which is really neat when it comes to after the shearing process, when we've really classified all those yarns to, to usable or not usable uh, in yarn, what, what we have done is made dryer balls. And they're a very fascinating and fun product. Uh, so instead of using a dryer sheet, you're able to utilize these felted, wool balls in your dryer and it actually soaks up and wicks the moisture away from the clothing while beating up or pounding or fluffing uh, your clothing and uh, it just causes for a shorter driving or drying time and allows for your clothes to end up with a little fragrance if you put it a little oil we have a special little unique thing to our dryer balls uh, we put a, a little indention inside of them and so when you are going to use them, you can put whatever essential oil you'd like to literally inside about an inch into the ball without the oil being on the surface. And, and so your clothes. it doesn't transfer oh, your yeah. clothes and stain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've read a little bit about using wool balls to, to save on money. You're not buying those um, consumable dryer sheets. Yep. And it improves the drying speed of clothes in the dryer and stuff. And yeah. you're supporting regenerative ag yeah. and small farms. Yes. And, and, those that, and those that are, you know, have yeah. synthetic uh, allergies to some of the things that are on the dryer sheets, they don't have to worry about that. And you get to select what fragrance you would like your clothes to smell like. Yeah. They're, they're great. Yeah, well, I had, hadn't even thought about that aspect because I've tried to um sell them to my wife a little bit i may have to order some please do please do <laughs> there we go um and but she's all about her essential oils so that'll there you go that'll, that'll go, go over well <laughs> yeah before we get to our final four uh questions that we ask all of our guests there's one more topic i really want to cover and 
and it's not really uh, grazing base, but I think on your all's website, you do dove release. Yeah, so actually our doves are kind of grazers as well. I have a, a flight of about 35 white doves. Cody They're calls White them. homing pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> They're not doves. Hey, all <laughs> pigeons came from a rock dove, okay? <laughs> so we're really talking about doves. Uh, but yeah, these guys are for celebratory purposes, whether or not that's a, a event that you have for a bar mitzvah or a wedding or a funeral. They're, they're used for all sorts of different ways to highlight an event uh, or to make a moment a moment of, of special value. And that's, that's something that's been happening uh, for centuries. Uh, the white dove release, and so that's it's a fun thing that we're able to do on the farm and off the farm for guests. Uh, I'm the chamber president here in in Ferndale, and we release them for every uh, parade that we have, which is like 13 parades during the year, and then uh, at our local fair where we have the horse races. I sing the national anthem and then release the doves there at the end. And the cool thing about a dove release as a business is you release them and. Someone rents them out, they release them, and then they fly back home and you rent them out again. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they, you know, they, they come right back and they get to do their job all over again. Yep. That's pretty neat. But they are often seen grazing the grass out in the field. <laughs> oh, yes. So your um, loft for your doves, so are they free roaming or... It depends on what season. So I, I don't let them hatch out all year round. And I have gotten a practice now down to where I have a little uh, cage outside of their door, their one direction door. Um, and so if if I am raising uh, young stock or young birds that are going to uh, be flying with the rest of the crew, uh, I start them off by letting them go in and out of that that one door. Um, with a cage right in front of that. Um, and then otherwise, after after a little bit of practice, uh, they're able to slowly, one at a time, uh, go out with the rest of the, the crew and, and learn what it means to fly back with them. And I just do sh short little test flights. So you'll start at the neighbor's farm, and then you'll go down to the corner, and then a mile away, and then five miles. And you know, these guys can actually do well with several hundred miles uh, but we don't do that as a part of our practice. We we just stick with inside the valley. And how many miles is that? Only 15. There's our oh, max. Okay. Well, that's just super fascinating to me. When I read old farm books, um, you know, from the, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, they talk about um, pigeons and raising squab. And yeah. It fascinates me pigeons doves do um however my wife says we are not eating squab <laughs> i do not recommend it <laughs> well you raise i, I raised squab, squab for years and i am not a fan but some oh, people yes. love it <laughs> so I, I appreciate you indulging me just giving me a little information on that even though it's not super related to the podcast no we're happy yeah, absolutely to. <laughs> just another diversification <laughs> It's time for our famous four questions. Every episode, has we ask the same four questions of all of our guests. Our first question, what is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? You know, mine's not necessarily just based on grazing grass, uh, but it is about 
fleece and, and sheep. Uh, it's called Vanishing Fleece by Clara Parks. It's kind of the process that, that she describes in, in that book of what she went through. Uh, she started off just by rating and, and interviewing different uh, sheep producers or fleece producers. And after about 10 years, she actually started getting a little skin in the game herself and got gifted a, a large bale of fleece and, and had the opportunity to bring on many other individuals uh, with her in that process. And uh, reading that book or listening to the book, as we often do here on the farm, uh, it it is it was really interesting to see the parallels between her process and learning and, and mine as well, and, and picked up a lot of different uh, small nuances that I, I continue to learn and improve upon my marketing skills today. Yeah, and I have two that I would, um, Principles of Range Management by Holacek, which was actually one of my intro to range textbooks, and it's just one that I always come back to as a reference uh, when I have a question. And then uh, Pastoral Song, which is James Rebank's newest book that he just published. Uh, and If you're not familiar with James Rebanks, he's a shepherd from the Lake District of England, and it's really kind of a great accessible introduction to regenerative agriculture as he tells the story of kind of himself finding his way to regenerative ag and his family's uh, challenges as they became a more regenerative farm. I think it's just a great, not only is it entertaining, but it's a great way to introduce someone to regenerative agriculture. Oh, very good. So I've got a couple more books to add to my to read list. Yeah. <laughs> They're all good. <laughs> Wonderful. And I'm always, now, I'm going to say this. I'm always excited when people come on and they say a different book or resource that we haven't heard about or I'm not familiar with. But at the same time, I don't discount those people that comes on and says uh, that trusted and true resource we've, we've mentioned numerous times because we have They're listeners. It may be their first time. It, and it's, you know, I pick out books. I go, I'm going to go on a tangent for a second. Yeah. Um, I go to a bookstore. I love bookstores. And when I find a book that's interesting to me, I take a picture of it. Oh, yeah. And then I, because if I impulse, impulse buy books, I would have, well, I'd have to live in a library or my house. Would be a <laughs> so I take a picture of the book and I may take a, picture of a half dozen books any trip i go to a bookstore and then you know next time i'm in town i go to another bookstore that one i do the process over and then later i go back and look through my pictures and the books that show up often that has spoke to me different times those are the ones oh, i want to buy more. Idea. That's i like idea. that idea cody we need to get off the farm more often we do <laughs> Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? Well, I would like to say it would be the boys, uh, the livestock guardian dogs and our sheepdog dragon, yeah. because they are all critical. But also given this past few years, I think the generator might actually outweigh them Jeez. just oh, in the necessity yeah. to uh, have all of our barns running so we can milk and cool milk and keep our freezers of meat fro you know frozen and get water where we need it to keep livestock watered um, and so 
with the planned power shutoffs for safety, uh, fire safety, and fires in general, I think the generators have become really important the last two years. And for me, it's a tool that we both use, and that's our, our phones. To market what we do, you know, takes the requirements of cell phone data and photography and videography and the applications that allow us to have fun and, and educate folks. And it's amazing what your phone can do and yeah. using it to to record wherever you are and to, and to push out stuff. It's just amazing. It is. Um, then there's people telling us how bad we are because we're on it too much. But I, <laughs> I get both sides. Yeah, I'm on it too much, but man, it's a valuable tool. It is. What would you tell someone just starting out in agriculture or on a regenerative path? For, for me, I think grass and growing grass is something that you just have to start really, really small at if you're not familiar with it at all. And that's just because watching the process of the root structure grow and uh, all of the leaves starting to, to come out of the surface and the, the rhizomes spreading. Um, you know, if you had a cut section, that would be even a better process. Obviously, you can do that on YouTube or, or, or what have you. But the patience of, of seeing and the excitement of seeing the growth uh, happen so quick or, or, or not so quick during different conditions was really eye-opening to me. And that's a 4-H activity that I participated in when working with the university and, and being a part of a four generations of a 4-H family. And that is just watching that process of a seed uh, grow into forage. I think if I were going to give advice to a beginning farmer, I'd say start small, build your plan out, and be prepared for your plan to fail and to need to adapt because that's pretty much how farming works. Mm -hmm. We're at the mercy of mm -hmm. the climate and nothing ever goes as planned. All living systems. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we plan for the perfect year, but we never have a perfect year or <laughs> yes. ideal year. The best laid plans of farmers. That's right. Yes. And lastly, where can others find out more about you? Foggybottomsboys.com. Uh, and Instagram and Facebook as well. Uh, but we, we really like to, to work up our website. Uh, because that's obviously where we get to sell products through. Uh, but you can subscribe to our emails, and we send out uh, emails at least once a month uh, to share a little bit about what's going on or our special deals. Um, and in between that, we have all of Cody's antics on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. Yeah, we update and now Instagram. TikTok. Yeah, we, uh, yeah don't, update don't forget Instagram. TikTok in there. <laughs> no, and on TikTok, it's unorthodox farm daddy. But uh, on Facebook and Instagram, Foggy Bombs Boys, and we update every day. Very good, Cody and Thomas. I so appreciate y'all coming on and sharing about your journey. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Kyle, for having us. Thanks for having us. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post. We appreciate it. Are you a grass farmer? Are you interested in sharing about your journey? Go to the grazinggrass.com website 
click on Be Our Guest and fill out the form and we'll be in touch to see if we can schedule you for your episode. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. That's the normal end, but today I mentioned earlier in the episode about a health issue affecting our schedule. First off, I don't want to take away from Thomas and Cody and the wonderful job they did with this and the wonderful information they shared. However, I've gotten to know many of you through this podcast, and I feel like we're family and friends, so I just want to keep you in the loop about what's happening. My wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and it's caught early. It's in stage two, so it's it's caught early, but we're still going to have to go through a process with that, some chemo and stuff. So that's going to cause our episodes not to be released as often. If you're interested in that journey um, with breast cancer, my wife and I are releasing a podcast just to just to bring you along on the journey with the hopes that it helps somebody. And while we don't have that podcast named yet, uh, we have started recording episodes and we'll be releasing them soon. And I'll let you know what the name is. We appreciate your positive thoughts and prayers. And let's sign off again. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.